0: That plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
1: Today's episode is brought to you with the welcome support of Maltbean Creek, UK's leading Creek telecathetic supplier and distributor of premium creek produce be it wine, herbs, cheeses or olive oil, from all over the wild corners of Greece and working directly with small artisan producers. If you want to try some um, amazing traditional meats from Greece, preserved meats, why don't you get some Bavurakis organic smoked ciglin from Malibu Greek. So this is preserved um, and smoked um, pork in olive oil and they follow a traditional Cretan recipe for it, which is really old and uh, The meat is smoked using olive wood and it's flavoured with pepper and cumin. Or you can try the organic uh, Cretan sausages with cumin and vinegar. Again, another old Cretan recipe with uh, roots to the Byzantine um, Empire. Whatever you need, Malbin Creek has you covered. You can shop online and have the exquisite goods delivered to your doorstep across the UK. Or you can visit the shop at Art17 Apollo Business Park. Lucy Way, SE164ET, Bermondsey, London. Malby and Greek, the one-stop shop for your Greek fix. And, <laughs> of course, for all you dear listeners, Malby and Greek has an amazing discount of 15% f- off your next purchase. So go online, go to the website and type malbyandgreek.com forward slash delicious and you get 15% discount at the checkout. My name is Thomas Dinas, and this is a delicious legacy podcast. On each episode, I find some ancient recipe, ingredient or tantalizing element from ancient cuisines, which has a fascinating story to tell to our modern selves. Today's episode is diverging a little bit, but I always want to know more about the Cornwall Project and Carl Yeomaten, a meat not so popular in UK, but here's our man that is fighting to change this, Matt Chatfield. We talk about traditional farming, timeless ancient techniques, silvopasture, and how this will help humankind for the future too. Matt's an incredible character. Uh, He's a farmer and a person full of passion and energy for quality produce, alongside making the planet a better place for future generations. We've talked about many subjects here for a length of time, so here's uh, an edited version of our chat, with some of our most interesting bits of it. Our online interview was very challenging, as Matt is obviously down in Cornwall, in his caravan somewhere in a field with only a mobile phone and sporadic 4G signal. We were regularly losing connection due to wind apparently and the quality of the audio is not the best one I'm afraid. But uh, nevertheless, I think you will enjoy the knowledge that Matt uh, kindly offered here and shared with all of us. Matt highlights uh, the fact that there are many farmers that they are doing an excellent work both to feed the people and also care for nature. And from what it looks like from my side, to be honest, basically, uh, there are lots and lots of uh, people out there uh, doing their best for nature and for the environment. But the main obstacle, as always, is uh, governments not listening to us, but to make money from uh, multinational corporations. As a result, nothing seems to change for the better long term. Instead, we create new problems on top of the already existing ones. Anyway, I hope you enjoy Matt's thoughts and actions and buy his lovely aged mutton. Incredibly tasty and versatile. Thank you. Welcome uh, to our uh, podcast, The Delicious Legacy, Matt. Thank you for joining us.
0: Okay, no worries. Nice to nice to be here.
1: And I've been uh, obviously following you for a couple of years on uh, online, on, on Twitter mainly and Instagram and so on. Um, uh, but yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about... Uh, Yourself, uh, what do you do, and all that stuff? How you started uh, for our listeners, basically about the Calio project and um, the Calio meat, and the Cornwall yeah. project, and all that.
0: Um, so I, I come from a farming background. Um, um, I, I'm actually now sitting on our farm. Um, it's been in the farm, well, family for about 400 years. We've been farming it. Um, I've only actually, well, we farmed it on behalf of a big estate. About 360 years, and then my granddad was able to buy it 40 years ago. Um, but it's only a small farm, it was about 80 acres. When my granddad passed away, um, it was basically 40 acres each because my the two sisters, one of being my mum, got half each. Um, so basically, he was like a dairy farmer, um, never really had a chance to um take on the farm because it was felt to be just too small. You know, he was a dairy farmer, and at that time, you know, was he, he was sort of retiring. Dairy farming was very difficult. Um, so we never encouraged a farm. But I always wanted to. I went off to London, did publishing for like 10 or 12 years. Um, uh, about 14 years ago, my nan passed away, but she passed away. I spent a lot of time with her and decided that I wanted to somehow try and get the, um, get the farm working again. But I knew to do that. You know, I basically knew that it was very hard to make profit from a small farm. So I took the decision to approach my local butcher, Philip Warren Butcher, um, the son called Ian Warren, um, with the idea of supplying restaurants in London with their meat. Yeah. Um they're very recogn you know, very very respected local butcher. We we you know we didn't know how good their meat was compared to the rest of the country, but down here, you know, they That's okay. um, So yeah, so basically um yeah, decided to take on the farm but I knew I couldn't actually um you know, just the farm, you know, A, I can actually farm. And this is before the days of sort of like farmers markets and local cheeses and things. So I knew that to be able to farm, I needed to actually have a guaranteed market for high-end for that. So I um, approached my butcher, Philip Warren, or his son, Ian, um, and I basically went to London and set up a restaurant business for them. So we set up a supply chain over to few years, supplying the best restaurants in London with their meat. Um, and the idea was I was always going to come back and farm. And so I was actually going to supply them with beef with a, a breed of cattle down here called the Red Ruby. His real name is North Devon. Um, but basically, you know, you know through <laughs> lots of different things that happened in London. Um, and, you know, I ended up actually, well, I spent two years on a houseboat learning about farming, about after being in London for 10 years. And I went over to um and spent quite a lot of time with the um, Hamon people out there, the, the Iberico pig farmers. Yeah. I realized that, you know, I personally view Hamon as the best meat in the world. Um, So I was very interested to see how that happens. And what I realized was that you have an animal that walks a lot in its life, um, which basically puts muscle, you know, uh, the more an animal walks in its life, the more flavor goes into the muscle. And then they put on this huge amount of fat at the end of their life on acorns. Yeah. So I suddenly realized that that was actually quite similar to our sheep, basically. So sheep, you know, probably lived seven or eight years, have walked a very long time, you know, walked miles and miles in that time. They've generally had grass all their lives. Um so I thought, why not take the sheep that aren't any good for breeding anymore and basically fatten them on on pasture? So basically what my whole thing is, you know, I try and do as much good to the environment as I can whilst fattening sheep um and giving them a really good retirement, basically. Yeah. So yeah, so it's, it's different things. So, you know, there's a lot that happened to make it when you get there. But Essentially now on the farm, um I'm now selling my mutton. Um but it, I actually call it co-yaw. So basically when a farmer feels like his sheep aren't any good for breeding, he culls them. Yeah. Which is why they're called cow. And the local colloquial name for you is yaw. So that's why I call it Koyol. And my whole thing is I don't wanna I wanna speak farmers language. I don't really wanna, you know, I wanna I wanna I want farmers to understand that I'm on their side. And I speak their language. Um, it was a bit of a gamble calling it Koyor. but yeah, it seems to work really. So yes, yeah, so after all that time, I know through the supply chain we set up, now sell that meat to restaurants in London, basically.
1: Great, great. Yes, I think uh, I think one of my friends, uh, chef uh, friends, Vasilis Hamam, uh, I think he used quite a lot of uh, your maton, I think, because uh, uh, either from the Cornwall project. So I think I found you through
0: here. Well, the actually worked for me, at a place called the Adam and Eve. Yeah, and that's when I first discovered um this sheep because it was actually a different um our delivery driver his, his father in law was a farmer was looking to retire from beef farming and he's actually came up the it was actually his idea to come up with fattening sheep. So when I was at the Adam and Eve pub, my was there with my head chef at the time, Michael Harrison. Yeah. Um. And, yeah. And basically, we actually did mutton there. So that was you know. So six years later, well, four or five years later, I ended up. You know that was the basis of the idea, and that's you know. So when I went to actually Madura, I realised why that mutton we used to use the Adam and Eve was so good. Yeah. So mm. look, that sounds great. So he's just recently left London, but he's yeah. brilliant. He's really, yeah, really, really good. He was. He, you know, he ended up doing really, really well over here, and I, I hope he's doing pretty well back back home. Really.
1: Yeah, I hope so too. Yeah, I think I think he will do well. But yeah, I think through him uh, I found out more about you, and I was very interested. Always uh, with um, to try your meat, so I did try it from Vasilis. But now I got some. Uh, I ordered some uh, from Philip Warren for. Uh, so yeah, I'm gonna. So I've got some uh, of that to to cook for myself here in my barbecue. Uh, so you're doing something called silvopasture, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, So um, so what I'm trying
0: to do is, I mean, I think if I start, I think farmers are being asked to do four things in the future, Um, and I think farmers are being asked to, feed people, hopefully highly nutritious, high-quality food. Um, They're going to be asked to basically sequester carbon, so take carbon from the atmosphere and put it into the soil and store it. Um, They're going to be asked to increase biodiversity, um, and they're going to be asked, and I think this is the most important one actually, is do you have to store water into the soil? So, you know, the climate is changing. We're getting very wet winters, dry summers. Water is incredibly precious. So rather than put it on land where it just washes away and goes you know, straight out to sea, we need to store it on land. So it's also really it's coming up with farming methods that hit all those sweet spots, really. But yeah. also the most important is, you know, as I'm now farming, um, sheep Sheep are ruminant. They have four stomachs. They are a walking miracle. You know, we need to respect them. and give them an incredible life. While they're on this planet. So my farming method and silver pasture basically is the sweet spot between all of those. Um, on, if you look at project drawdown, so there's the organizational project drawdown, I think 100 scientists around the world have worked out the best ways of drawing carbon from the atmosphere and storing it down here. Um, silver pasture is number nine. And silver pasture is simply I haven't invented everything. Um, I might pretend I do. <laughs> but um, <laughs> hopefully it's just basically what we always used to do and around the world they still do it is um, farming in trees basically. So it's basically grazing in woodland. Yeah. Um, I saw a talk by a chap called Steve Gabriel and anybody listening to this really ought to try and listen to it. Um, there was a Oxford Real Farming Conference um, you know, about three years ago and a chap called Steve Gabriel from upstate New York talked on it. If you're on YouTube You can find it. Um, He spoke for an hour, and it was basically, he was a conservationist and a farmer. He had some sheep. There was really bad drought. Everybody's sheep and cattle in the area were really struggling. He put his sheep into a woodland. He didn't know what else to do. And a month later, they came out really fit and healthy. So he just suddenly really got into it. So he discovered by accident. Um, And then, basically, you know, when I that talk. it was about a year before I started farming is something that I always, you know, just stuck in my mind. Basically, you know, it gives, it, gives you drought resistance, but also, you know, if you've got trees and you've got grass and you've got ruminants, like, you know, you're pumping so much carbon into the soil and keeping it there. It's just phenomenal, really. But when I came back to the family farm, we've only got 40 acres and yeah. 10 acres of that are ancient woodland. Um, yeah. And no one, we, our family haven't farmed in there literally for 300 years. So between three and 400 years ago, it's very obvious that they did farm it, but then it's just been left. So I've gone in there with a chainsaw, clearing areas, letting lights in, putting the sheep in, and it's just absolutely exploded into life. So now I've actually seen it. It's um, it's actually just a miracle. You know, it's the most ex- extraordinary thing I've ever seen. You know, like and it's just, you just need a chainsaw and some sheep. <laughs> like, and then it's absolutely just, you know, I've got, you know, it was basically dead the floor of the woodland because it was um there was like a complete tree cover, like no light was going in. Yeah, and there's probably like all well, we have was wooden sock and ivy on the floor. I've just cleared a bit of space, and when you copy this, it, it still means it grows back. So it's not like you're killing a tree. I mm. mean um, it grows back, but I've probably got about 200 different plants growing from the floor, all from the sea bank, and some of those seeds might have been there for years. It's yeah. just insane. And you know, uh, and I met another chap called Chris Jones. He actually talked at the same conference about civil pasture. I met him just before I started farming, and I was very scared because I just didn't actually know how to farm. Mm-hmm. And he said, um, if you look after nature, then flavor looks after yourself, and it's the most inspirational words I've ever had. Um, and basically, I was a countryside ranger for a while. I did an environmental studies background I'm obsessed with nature. So nature is something that I can look after. So essentially, I just look after nature by using the sheep and incredible things happen
1: really yeah that's that's the incredible thing and that's what's something that people don't know obviously so we townies we don't know about farming obviously and we don't know yeah. about uh, we 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 might love nature and we actually we're passionate about conservation and about wildlife yeah. and about uh, you know the, the term rewilding we love we love that idea yeah. but we actually yeah. don't know the reality on the on the yeah. ground yeah. yeah
0: I mean, I mean the reality is, you know, when I did my two years of studying on the houseboat, um, it was all just theory. But now I've actually seen it. Um, basically, the whole world, it's just, you know, I've now seen it, you know, so I'm not speaking, you know, like, um, it's, it's hard not to sound like a religious doesn't really, but ruminants are, I, I basically say that, like, um, like the sun is the fuel, and mm-hmm. ruminants are the alien. And when you actually see what ruminants do and how intrinsic they are to the carbon cycle, they are the carbon cycle basically. The sun comes right. down, the sun comes down, hits the plants. The plants are inside, so That goes into the soil. Um, that sort of feeds the plants. The ruminants then come along and they basically eat, you know, all these different products. It goes into them, their first stomach, comes up again. They chew their cud goes back down again, it goes into the room and where basically it ferments. So it's basically a fermentation chamber. So it's taking all these nutrients out of stuff that we, no way that we can. Yeah. But the most incredible thing is, and this is where it just gets, it's just crazy, is as long as you don't worm sheep, then basically the poo goes through the sheep. And because it hasn't been wormed, you get something called dung beetles. And we have 60 species of dung beetle in this country. They basically chew, suck all the liquid out from the poo. I know it sounds terrible, but then what it leaves behind is this absolute miracle substance. <laughs> and then when mm-hmm. it rains, when it rains, this poo, like it just goes into the soil, and you just see the magic that happens around it. Like it's just that it feeds, my well, personal belief it feeds the fungal network, it just like gets everything moving. So my personal belief is you can overgraze, of course you can, but without ruminants, like you know the the whole soil, everything is driven by you know, ruminant poo that hasn't been wormed, basically. And when you know, now I've seen it in my woodland. You know, I mean, I've had people there like you. you came up like two years ago. Yeah. Um, now they've come now, I and mean, honestly, like you know, you have you. They, 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 you know, we had some chefs. I mean, actually, strange enough, a chap called Medu. So he's a Greek chef from. um He's the head chef at Kiln. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, good friend of mine, brilliant chef. Came down like two years ago. They basically thought I was doing like eco-terrorism in my wood, and they didn't know why. Because <laughs> no, it was just it was messy. There was mud, you know, and there were trees coming down. And now they've gone in there, and it's basically just like paradise. It's just you know, mm. it's it's absolutely you know, like the, the transformation in two years. It's is just incredible. Yeah. yeah. Well,
1: I mean, the whole ecosystem needs 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 uh, not just you can't have just trees and expect the woodland to thrive. Yeah. You need to have yeah. animals. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. So there's a guy in, um, I've only really found one person who's as crazy as I am in terms of his thinking, really. Um, and he's, he's only got about 10 sheep, but he's farmed in Poland. But his thinking is, is just so out there. And what he sort of says is, like, there used to be dinosaurs and there used to be woody mammoths and there used to be just these huge, huge animals going through woodland, crashing them down. And he said, like, the amount of imagination you need to even think about what it used to be like, you know, like, we're just so, we're so naive and just thinking the world is what it is now. And it always has been, you know, like the whole country was covered in woodland and, you know, there was no gaps. Like, like there would have been huge gaps, huge ways. And and for me, like to know that there would have been huge gaps. Like I would say one of my, my favorite summer visitor is the swallow. The swallow comes all the way from Africa to here. And basically, swallows don't feed over trees; they feed over pasture. Mm-hmm. So it's obvious that swallows haven't just been coming here since we farm. They've, they, you know, they've been coming here since the, you know, they've existed. Yeah. So it's obvious that if you just you just need to look at the animals that come to the UK during the summer to realise that we've always had open plains and we've had woodland. And you know, like it's just it's just obvious. It's
1: just yeah. It's just a mixture of environments, of course, of course, yeah, 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 and um, yeah, and I mean we. We are in the situation that we have obviously to we need to feed the population as well and yeah. how do we do that without damaging the well damaging anymore but also nature and heal nature yeah. and, and uh, yeah and I think that's that's what people must understand I suppose from yeah. from farmers like well, you promise,
0: um, I think we can do it really really easily actually <laughs> um, you know I think if you do follow Twitter. I'm, I'm sort of. I call Instagram my sales and marketing division, and Twitter is my um, political wing. Um, I yeah. guess quite that. <laughs> but. but basically, I think we're being pushed down a direction where the corporate world wants to take over the food, the food supply. You know, the world as it were. You know, they want to do a complete corporate food supply chain. Yeah. But we, like we now have the science to realise that what our ancestors are doing. And my, you know, my granddad use chemicals, he was part of that generation where you just pump the you know the soil full of chemicals, you you plough it, plant monoculture ryegrass, and you just, you know, you use chemicals. But his generation before him used mixed farming. So they used they would graze cattle in an area for like two or three years. They would then plant veg. And yeah. um, you know, they would use the ruminants to get the soil working and then plant veg, extract carbon, but then do that for two years and then, you know, and now we've got the technology and science to actually realize that we can do that, but on a more you know, a lot more, um, efficient system. Yeah. So for me, I, you know, I'm a little farm and I'm, my, I view my job is to make mutton really, really popular. And it's very funny in Greece. There's actually uh, Alex, um, at what's the, where Vale Alex did work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. In um, uh, Alex, catalyst. Yeah. Um,
0: Alex. Yeah. Alex told me that in Greece, um, there is a online mutton club with <laughs> 250,000 members. 250,000 members of a mutton club in Greece. That is insane, isn't it? That's so
1: insane.
0: I view my job as to make mutton really popular. I personally think the the, the, the biggest challenge farming has in the UK is the age of farmers. I'm 50, well, 49. Yeah. I go to the market and everyone calls me young man. <laughs> like I'm like, really <laughs> young so I'm like, so basically, farmers are getting very old. We need to get a lot of new people into farming. I think what I'm doing is just the most simple way of farming, which is basically get some old sheep and basically put them on grass or in woodland and fatten them. And anyone can do it. You know, you have to work hard and learn, but anyone can do what I do. You just basically need some electric fence and some Mm. water trough and that's it, and some land. So what I think my job is to make mutton really, really popular and get everybody talking about it, which is sort of happening. But then where the revolution happens is on the arable land. So I've got a friend called Max. Um, he's a return to a sheep farmer in um, Hertfordshire. So he works with them on a place called Dutch's Farm. They're an arable system. He's now, he came down and saw me, looked at how to do it for five days. He's now gone up there and he's now farming sheep on an arable system where he's now using strip raising to improve the arable land. And then they're mm-hmm. basically planting wheat. So he's done it in the space of a year. He's got it up and running. Um, So I would say the revolution is going to happen, whereby at the moment the arable farmers are using chemicals as their input, they're having to use pesticides and they're having to use fertilizer. The sheep are replacing both those things. His sheep are well, they're not a pesticide, but they're getting they're getting rid of the plants that he doesn't need, which is black grass. Yeah, and they're adding all the poo as the fertilizer. Yeah, and basically. I think arable systems, rather than being a separate system, livestock and arable, they need to come back together like they used to. Mm. Because now we've got electric fencing and stuff, you can just be so efficient with your grazing. So if you just keep moving your sheep, like every day, new patch of land with your electric fence, basically they start trampling in organic matter, they feed the worms, they poo, they feed the dung beetles, and it just everything just kicks into place. Yeah. So, and I think I did some sums. I've got a friend of mine. So with me, you never have to ask many questions. <laughs> I tend to go off on one. Good. <laughs> a friend of mine called Fred at Stanley Farm, he's using Tamworth pigs on his arable farm. And I did some sums for Friends of the Earth. I did a bit of work for Friends of the Earth, Northern Ireland a few years ago. And basically Fred uses Tamworth pigs, um, moves them around for like three years on the arable land by planting a herbal lay. So he plants about 30 different plants. The pigs eat them for three years, and then he plants heritage wheat. I did sums where it showed well, at the moment we've got 9 million pigs in factories in the UK. Horrendous. I hate uh, factory farming. If 20% of farmers use pigs like Fred does, that would be 99 million pigs on the fields instead of in factories. And my feeling is you know, you basically all your land then is being used to produce wheat and meat. And my thinking is. You know, in time, Fred will have sums, and I think the sums will so he's saving a huge amount of money because he's not spending on chemicals. And his input is actually, he's making money from, his input to his system it are pigs, which are actually an output, if you see what I mean. Mm. So I think I think doing that, you could get incredibly healthy animals, very good, highly nutritious meat, but um, you would get a lot of it as well. You know, <laughs> like if you just yes. think, yeah, for, you know, so... I actually think it's just the easiest thing in the world, actually, to solve our food problem. But I would say we're being told that ruminants are killing the planet. Mm. And I've no doubt all that it is a conspiracy. And I, I use the word conspiracy because I think like most conspiracies seem to be coming true at the moment. Um, I don't think if a conspiracy is actually true, I just don't think it's a conspiracy theory. Um, I would say Big Ag wants to take control of the food system and they they can't really control ruminants. And what they can control is, you know, the growing of plants and, you know, these sorts of things. So I think it's, you know, it's played by them. So, you know, it's obvious, you know, all the government stuff has come out this week and all these conference things, they're just not mentioned in farming. They're not mentioning carbon acquisition. You know, it's just, you know, yeah. there's something very weird going on at the moment, I think. And I think it's because, you know, the corporate world wants to take over the food supply, really. And I make no secret of that on my Instagram. It's not like I'm, I'm saying something new, you know. I've been going on about it for five years, basically. Mm.
1: Uh It's it's very difficult at the moment, isn't it? Because uh, from one hand, you have uh, the yeah the movement saying we need to to eat a lot more obviously vegetarian diet, but yeah. at the same time they invest on uh, all these fake meat fake meat products. And it's yeah. okay. what what are what are we actually doing here? <laughs>
0: yeah. 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 Yeah, it's, it's, um, I mean, I, I don't do this, I'm not, well, like, to be honest, I am anti-vegan now, and I, I'll tell you why I'm anti-vegan, is because, A, I, if you still on my land, within 30 seconds, you will realise that the vegan movement is nonsense. And, the, you know, and it may sound a big thing to say, but I've, I'm now sitting on my land, I'm surrounded by my fields, the way I graze, basically, I'm creating an environment, I make, I kill 20 ruminant beings per acre per year. So on average, for every acre of land I've got, I kill 20 sheep. They feed people, you know, probably provide thousands of meals. But I'm providing a habitat for literally tens of thousands of sentient beings. Like today, I saw a peregrine falcon take a pigeon over my land. I walked over my fields and I saw frogs. I saw mice. I saw voles. Tonight, I've seen a barn owl flying over my land. If you planted, um, say, wheat or oats, or you wouldn't get any of that. You would kill... Tens of All thousands of people. So, and not only did you kill them at that time, you killed them forevermore. Yeah. So my land is providing the most, you know, you know, like I say, so, and the reason I'm now just becoming anti-vegan is I had a lady come down. I won't mention her name, um, but basically, um, she bought some Koyor online, um, and then she sent me an email, uh, you know, sort of saying she liked it.
1: Yeah.
0: She asked me loads of questions which i couldn't really answer so i invited her down well she actually stayed down here at a her friend or like a coombshead said um, restaurant she came over to see my farm and then it basically and i'm not doing this to be you know it's hard to do this without me sound like a hero but essentially she was had very bad food eating issues mm-hmm. um essentially she was vegan and it was all given by driven by guilt and in her own words she basically would have died she was on the way to dying um and she saw Koyor, she saw the way I was doing it. She thought it sounded very ethical. So she took a gamble, ate some, and it basically started on the road to recovery. She now goes to Coombshead, stays there, eats their food. And she's basically, she was driven by guilt and driven by all these messages to basically not eat meat. And it basically was going to kill her. Mm. She's actually now visited. <laughs> and obviously I didn't realise how important it was when she visited. Like You imagine if I actually had my sheep in cages and it was all nonsense. But it wasn't, you know, she just came down she saw what it was, loved it, you know, very happy with it. So I'm like, I, wouldn't, I don't think she's alone. I think there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of particularly women, actually, young women, who for one reason or another have been driven to associate eating with guilt um, and body yeah. issues. And I think the vegan movement is using those people. And I think, you know, from my own research, and for people I know, the smart, well, second smartest person i ever met, a lady from Valerie, um, she basically is a brain... She studied brain function and nutrition for like a, lot, a long time. She's now treating people. And she says that all the people she treats are teenage girls who are vegan and they've all got glutamate deficiency. They're not able to get glutamate from their diet. And she said most of the people she's treating are going to have body... Well, they, they will never be... Um, physically or mentally the same ever again. She said they've done too much damage. So I'm now to the point where I've seen my system, the vegan, the whole plant-based thing is nonsense because it just doesn't, it doesn't work for planet or human health. You know, like, mm. so yeah, sorry to go on about it. But yeah, it's one of those things where I'm right now, I'm like, since this girl, this lady came down and I've realized how guilty she was made to feel I'm like, I'm just like, it's time just to shout and say, Look, this needs to stop because, you know, I've now seen what ruminants do and room without ruminants. Yeah. I honestly think the only chance we've got on this planet is getting ruminants as a key part of the system again and get the planet and the soil working again. Yeah. And we can suppress a huge amount of carbon. You know, if you think carbon is the issue, the only way naturally we can get carbon from up there down there is by using ruminants, basically. Anyway. (laughs) Went on one then. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, that's excellent. There's a lot of things there to ponder and, and uh, discuss, of course. Uh, I mean, one of the things that... Um, the problem is, I was reading recently, there's too few farmers in the UK. I think there's like 1% of the population.
0: Yeah, okay, yeah.
1: Or less, or is, is it about 1%?
0: I think, I mean, yeah, yeah, maybe. I mean, down here, there's a lot of us. You know, where I am in, in Devon stroke, Cornwall. But yeah, I think nationally, there's a lot of people employed indirectly from farming, you know? So it's a, it's a bigger industry than... I mean, down here in Cornwall and Devon, it is the biggest industry, in, you know, down, even though we've got tourism. Mm. So, you know. Um, but yeah. So what you, yeah, anyway, so your point was... I've got to do so carry on. Yeah, well, so yeah, I was, I was uh,
1: listening about... Another podcast about agriculture and uh, some somebody called Colin Tudge and was talking about that we need we need at least like maybe twenty percent of the population to be farmers and I think yeah. uh, so we're gonna have a more balanced system and have something you know yeah. f- to feed our yeah. to feed the country basically and currently what we do wh- while there's a cup there's a few people like you but mostly we have industrial farms and which is yeah. not it's it's basically the opposite of what we should be doing basically uh, uh yeah. so yeah we, we don't help the environment and we don't help uh, feed the people healthy yeah. stuff uh but how 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 can we change that how i mean obviously you helping with market. your way but how can you make it
0: cause, yeah yeah well i right so basically when i went to the oxford real farming conference i heard about regen about four years ago, and. Bridgetang is essentially using ruminants to improve your soil, you know, by basically keep on moving your sheep or your you know ruminants, um, you're pushing, um, yeah, it's basically, you know, you're using your it's you a farming method to improve your soil. Now I heard about it four years ago. I was shouting around it for two years. I was on Twitter, I was on Instagram, I was shouting at all the journalists to say you need to be talking about this. And I actually thought I was probably one of the only people who knew about it. And
1: mm-hmm.
0: then went to to the real farming conference. And there were 1,000 people there and every single one of them was smarter than me, was doing more than me, knew more than me. And it was obvious that there is a huge movement out there. It's basically almost like a silent revolution.
1: Mm. So it
0: is actually happening, but it's just... Well, then it wasn't being talked about, but now it's beginning to be talked about. So basically, there's this huge movement. You know, if you... And I went to another conference this year, um, Groundswell, and there were thousands of people like... Thousands of people wanted to go, but couldn't get tickets. And so there is actually a huge movement happening. Um, My personal belief is journalists are just crap (laughs) or editors are crap. Um, I think they just pander to their advertisers. Um, I also think social media platforms um, are a lot of the big social media companies are invested in plant-based stuff. And I would say algorithms are designed to highly promote plant-based material rather than this farming material. Yeah. But basically, there are, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people doing what I'm doing. And a lot of people are doing it a hell of a lot better than me. Um, so I think there is actually a huge movement out there and it's mm. happening. And I would say, I've come back to Cornwall and I play cricket. And I play cricket, the team I used to play for 25 years ago. And um, they're all sheep farmers. I've come back. They all think I'm, well, they don't think I'm crazy. They probably just think I'm a bit of a twat, really. But we get on very well. They're all beginning to think the way I am. You know, They're all quite conventional. Mm. Um, the price of fertilizer is literally trebled this year. They won't be able to put them as much fertilizer down here. They're going to have to start using new methods to farm. So what I'm saying is, I think just by the price, the way the world is going, farmers are going to have to farm like this. There's plenty of us doing it. There's plenty of us that they can now come to advice for. I go to them for advice on actually how do you make money farming. And I think they're going to start coming to me, asking me for advice and how do they make the source fertile without using chemicals. So, yeah, i yeah. I'll take your point. But I think, again, going back to my previous point, I think my job is to show, get Martin famous, but also show people that anyone can do this style of farming. And I just want as many new entrants Coming in as possible, and I've probably got about ten people who are now farming on the back of what I'm doing, and I've got like ten other people supplying me, and hmm. and you know. So I think, yeah. So to answer your question, I think it's happening. Actually, it's happening. I think it's happening.
1: Yeah, yeah. It just uh, you know, obviously, a lot of the things that you hear. It could be instant. Oh yeah, yeah. It's not going to be instant. It's not going to be from one day to the next. But a lot of the things that we hear is about how expensive land is, and obviously how difficult it's for young yeah. people to. Go to land and farm, even if you if yeah. you want to. Uh, so it's always, uh, you know, an obstacle. I mean, so yeah, there is not going to be young people farming, and as you said, <laughs> you are the youngest.
0: Yeah, <laughs> uh, but... yeah, yeah but I think. I mean, there are lots of younger people that are doing it, and um, like I say, my hope would be that arable farmers don't really want to farm livestock. My hope is there is a huge opportunity for young people, and I say I don't care if you are young. I don't care if you're gay. I don't care you know, what colour you are, what sexuality. If you want to farm, you should be able to farm. You know, whatever age, whoever you are, Yeah. if you want to farm, you should be able to farm. And I think by looking at what Max is doing at Dutch's Farm, I think the big opportunity for new entrants is to approach arable farmers and say, can I graze animals on your land? Mm-hmm. You know, can you plant a herbal lay? Can I be responsible for your animals? And then it's just an incredibly easy and good way to get into farming. And I think the arable farmer wins, the new entrant wins. So I'm, I actually think what Max is doing at Duchess is really important because mm. he's literally never seen a sheep in his life <laughs> until last year. He's now got like 100 sheep, you know, and then next year he's looking at 200, then 300. Max is like, Max is showing what it's actually just really possible. And it's not easy. But then, you know, if you want to farm, yeah, you know, if you really want to farm, you should be able to, and Max is proving it and you know I'm hoping then other arable farmers open the doors and say look you know if you want to learn to farm if you want to do livestock come to my farm do it you know oh, that's- that, that's so, that, um, that to me is is just a, it's just such an obvious opportunity for, mm. for new entrants and, and he's based in Hertfordshire so if you've got a lot of listeners in London um, who've never even thought about farming just get on your train it's t- 20 minutes from um, Liverpool Street Station to Sawbridgeworth Just you can just go up and see Max. You know, invite yourself up, go and have a look around. Yeah. So anyway, you know, and that's why I love—the fact that it's so close to London because you know it's accessible for everyone, really.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously, the other important point is mutton is delicious, and most more people should be eating mutton. And that's another thing I don't understand why mutton is not extremely
0: popular. Yeah, it's, um, well basically it's like, it's all the supermarkets, isn't it? So the supermarkets, they want something that's exactly the same size. So with lamb, lamb does that for them. You know, it looks the same, the same size, it's consistent. So, you know, this easy food, this easy distribution, mutton just isn't that. Every single sheep I've got is different, basically. Mm, mm. So it just doesn't fit that. So, but, you know, with the advent of farmer's markets and online shopping and people coming, you know, you know, it's, it, it, it it's, um, it's, yeah, hopefully, you know, this is the time for it to shine. But it's just, um I guess what people haven't done before is put fat on them. So what generally happens with a sheep, yeah, so the sheep's lambed about five times. It's probably about 10 lambs. The farmer then feels it's no longer fit for breeding. But what generally happens is that sheep will then, you know, so it's just had its last lot of lambs. It's just weaned them naturally. But it's very thin because it's produced, it's been eating produced milk for its lambs. Imagine the bigger the lambs get, the more milk they have. So the poor sheep has been putting all that energy into lambs. Generally then, say a farmer's got 100, well, say he's got a 1,000 sheep, he probably replaces 15% of his flock each year. So he's got 150 sheep that he wants to get rid of. They either go straight to the abattoir, so they're all thin, they go straight to the abattoir, or they go to a, a market where abattoirs buy them. Mm-hmm. So they're all turned off, they're then taken to the abattoir and killed, so you've got this animal that's basically hasn't got any fat on it, um, and it's not at its best. And then basically they generally not age it. it's eaten straight away. And it is tough. If you don't age this meat, it's tough. Um, and it's got no fat cover, so there's no flavor. So what I'm doing is just getting them fat, basically. And, yeah. you, and some sheep, I generally I mean, some sheep will get fat in six weeks, some take six months, and some take actually two years. So I actually bought I bought some two years ago and I They've just been there hanging around. They just suddenly, well, they finally got fat this year. So I felt a bit bad, but I also thought, like, <laughs> two years just eat, sitting around eating grass. You know, it's not. I'm just living in trees. It's not bad.
1: Yeah, um,
0: yeah. They're, they're loving so the life. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So basically, dry aging. So with Philip Warren Butcher, incredible butcher, and um, they've got a very good dry aging facility. And basically what you do with the aging process is mutton is tough because it's walked a lot in its life that's where the flavor comes from so you need to age it and what the aging process is is there's an, an enzyme called cow pain. all meat in this country has an enzyme called cow pain. so when an animal dies that meat is actually what starts making the meat deteriorate so what you're doing is you're trying to encourage cow pain to grow and cow pain you need it needs moisture and not too cold, that basically starts um, working, starts breaking down the meat, um, starts making it tender. Mm-hmm. So we do that for like three weeks. And then for two weeks, we then put it into a dry-aging fridge. And a dry-aging fridge, it basically starts totally slowly taking the moisture out of that meat, which increases the flavor. Mm-hmm. So it's basically like a three or four-week process. And you end up with, you know, a very tender meat that's just full of flavor. Um, likewise, um, and one of the most important things with mutton is that there's a substance called um, laminin. Um, and lanolin is produced by the clams They're basically waterproofs the sheep so that's why my sheep you know my generally sheep are able to live outside the, the wool that's covered in lanolin it's waterproof so basically when it rains it just runs off after about five years old sheep um, basically lanolin is what when you have lamb you get that tacky flavor you know that's just you know food's a bit fatty on your tongue on top of your mouth that's basically lanolin but with sheep after about five or six years they stop producing it so basically you don't get that tacky flavor so with my sheep and I did it myself when I first had it. I thought it was going to be tough and tacky, but it was the opposite. It was just pure sheep flavour, no tackiness, and it was tender. You know, so he's, uh, yeah. So I think you know, you know, like I say, like in Greece, you know, there's two. You know, and you know the potential of it. If you think, like, there are millions and millions of sheep in this country, you know, like there's every sheep, every lamb you have, there's a sheep. So you know, I think there's literally. I know. I think it's a pretty similar. I think there's probably like 50. it might be say 15 million sheep in this country, so anyone here, you know, you're probably looking at, yeah. say, I don't know, my guess would be probably like 2 million sheep are currently going to slaughter without getting fattened, you see what I mean? Mm. Creating a market for it, then, you know, there is just a huge opening for young people, you know, a lot of, I always say young people, but anybody with Arab farmers and get people fattening sheep and, of course, people who farm veg and salads, um, you know, once you Plow land, plant loads of seeds and try and grow it like nature is just trying to stop you if you put ruminants on the land you're with nature so i say i basically say i'm not i'm not clever enough to farm against nature i need it on my side um and i and i think you know that's why i just think this is such a good way of getting new people farming basically and it's very rewarding i know you have to kill the, but you do have to kill the poor things but if you follow yeah. me on instagram particularly any sheep that I get very fond of, I keep. So I've probably got now twelve
1: sheep.
0: I've got twelve sheep that are now just basically pets. But what they do is <laughs> what they do, I was out there tonight like just come a I actually got a race. My little friendly ones came in. I was just sitting there, like we it's just it's just actually quite beautiful. Um but what happens is I get new sheep in and they could be wild crazy things from the moor. Once they come to my land, that's what happens is I go in the field, they run away to the other side. My friendly ones come running up to me and act like dogs. And the other ones are just watching. And within two or three days, they're all really calm. And they just follow me around with the bucket. You know, like, so it actually helps my system hugely. Because the more relaxed sheep are, <laughs> when they go, when they when your food goes into the rumen, you're going to have to edit this so that you get that in, um, they basically zonk out on the field. And they're, they're, they're um, fermenting, you know, they've got a fermentation chamber, it's their rumen, they zonk out and the more asleep they are, I personally feel the more nutrients they're accessing. So I want sheep. I want sheep. We play this game, farmer this game, alive or dead, where you've got a sheep, if it'll be on the floor, and it'll look like it's dead, and you see how close you can get to it before it suddenly mm-hmm. jumps up. And I the closer I get, the closer I get to sheep, the, the more I know it's basically just absolutely zonked out, fermenting, you know. So I don't want sheep in the field stressed and panicked. I want sheep. <laughs> just absolutely loving life and then just passing out. So, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's brilliant. That, that's that's the best way of doing it, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, we, we need to incorporate more of that in our diet anyway, M- more of, more maton, I suppose, more of that, but less, less crap meat, less cheap meat, less, less of this.
0: Yeah, and... yeah, totally. I mean, I, like I can say, like, I, the test of factory farming I think what we do particularly to pigs and chickens is shocking and there is actually I think there's no need for it I think if you get pigs and you can incorporate chickens onto a regenerative system in Australia they've got millions of chickens following sheep so basically you have the sheep that go through the chickens follow them uh. the chickens pick them their food, through and basically you know that's like in nature what I've got now is my sheep are in a the field there's a species of bird called the meadow pipit the meadow pipit you don't see them all summer i've now got like a 100 meadow people they're quite a rare bird but they're now mm-hmm. the sheep and they're eating all their poo the sheep the meadow would in turn of pooing on the ground which is very healthy for the ground so which nature you know wherever go, birds follow and so that in australia in particular they're farming sheep in fields on huge numbers they're moving and then they're putting chicken there afterwards so that's what i mean like if you just look at what nature does we could do the same there's just no need to have all these chicken in factories and like i say like you're not spending money on chemical fertilizer you're actually your fertilizer is a live animal that you can actually have meat on it yeah yeah
1: that's that's basically it yeah (laughs) Exactly. It's it seems it seems so simple, and I think yeah, I, I'm quite hopeful that uh, it will start happening.
0: More yeah. people
1: will realize that.
0: I think so. It's just um, like I say, like yeah, you know, within one minute of being on my farm, you just you understand that this way of farming is the way to save the planet. You know, like it's. I'm not like some god type. You know, I'm not like you know. You just it's just obvious. <laughs> like it's you know you just, you know the whole the world the world we have has been created by ruminants going around pooing and what you know and it's every bit of soil we got is working like all the arable land that's how the soil is created but they're just basically using up what the ruminants have done and then they get to a point where they put chemicals and then they need to get ruminants back you know it's you know it's it's just it's just you know it's just not rocket science that you know ruminants are just so in tune like when they when they hit land, it just transforms. Within like six months, A land transforms. It's just, you know, it's happens. That's the other bit to be positive about is it's so quick. Like, it's not like it takes 10 years. Within six months, your land changes. Like, the, the bacteria, the microorganisms in the soil are just ready. Like, it's not, Freddy does his pigs. Um, His soil had an organic matter, which is carbon, of 1%. And after like three or four years of pigs, it went up to like six or 7%, which is just, that's probably like Tons and tons of carbon being stored in the soil that wasn't there previously. You know, it just—it so quickly. Like, it's not like it's not like these chemicals have killed everything. Like, everything's still there, and it multiplies so quickly. If you just nudge it, it just explodes. You know, you, it's that's that's the thing. I'm most optimistic, geared up to to recover really quickly. From what I can, you know, from what I can see, you know, like it's it's um, you know, it's almost like you just know. Like, say we did disappear as a species, like it, the nature would. Like within, within you know, within not very long we just would be like, yeah, okay, whatever, like it's it. You know, like it's just phenomenal. Nature is just incredible. But like, you know, like you know, we haven't had um, like the way I'm farming now. You know, like I've never seen a Peregrine Falcon here ever. Like and now I'm farming in a way that's all. I'm leaving every all the the buds in the trees. all the natural there. We've got a lot of wood pigeon now, just you know, feeding on them. And then you know, I've now found two dead wood pigeon cocks killed by a Peregrine Falcon. And then I've now seen a pair of coca going. Like, that's just happened so quickly. Like, you know, it, 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 in living memory around here, no one's seen a pair of coca for And now suddenly, within two years of doing this, like, you know, like, it's just, you know, it's just it's crazy. Nature's like, yeah, just frightening, really. That,
1: that's a, that's amazing. That's really that's really good uh, case for for your case, actually, for doing this silver pasture, you know, more people yeah. should be doing that. Well, silver
0: pasture is very... Yeah, so we've got a species. Our fastest declining bird is called the willow tit. Yeah. Um, and in my woodland, we've got loads of them. <laughs> um, and everywhere that I coppice some for sheep, that's where the willow tits are. They don't. Mm. No animal likes a clouded, a completely covered canopy. That's just against nature. Like, you know, nature everywhere. I've, I open up space and let him light. That's where the willow tits are going. So I've got Devil Wildlife Trust like they just can't believe how many willow tits i've gone they can't believe where i'm doing the most activities where all the willow tits are and mm-hmm. it's just you know it's just we just it makes absolutely sense so yeah so like again you know if you just see the floor of my woodland where i i've got a place where i haven't coppiced and there's literally ivy and sorrel, where i've coppiced there's probably 200 plants and I, i've worked yeah. a guy from eden projects come down um, brilliant guy called dan ryan he's come and have a look and he's just blown away you know like so all these seeds are still there this season they're like 400 years old do you know what i mean that's what i mean about nature it's like it's not like these things have disappeared if you just get the soil conditions right 400 years later these plants are popping up these plants are like oh there's some sunlight oh there's some sheep shit right insane up come. It's, you know like so you don't need a seed bank you don't need to buy seeds the seeds are all there from mm. 400 years ago <laughs> is it, is, I I didn't know that. I did not know that. I'm like, you know, like, you suddenly see all these seeds come up. You're like, and you do then start thinking, shit. My family of this for 400 years. They they would have, that would have been seeds from what they were doing 400 years ago. You know, it's just this really. It's insane. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's
1: brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, all all, all this stuff. they, they also have. An impact on the what we call rewilding as well, uh, the whole thing. So basically, yeah. I mean, as a term, the rewilding can be very generic and very vague. Yeah. But I mean, in terms of trying to make nature in UK at least, what we talk now is UK. Uh, but it reintroducing species like uh, more predators and stuff. Is that something that can yeah. happen, <laughs> or, or is it?
0: Um, I, I don't know if you. Um, I. I... I always say I think rewilding could be beautiful, but rewilders are twats. But basically, but um, I would say it's been it's been it's the biggest Tory con of the lot. Um, basically, that you know I could go on and on about this, but I would say we don't need to rewild. We we basically we can we don't just need to plant. Like cover the whole area and wild wilderness, we can do both. We can actually increase biodiversity and feed people. My big worry at the moment is that companies are basically companies are going to be they're basically they're very very super rich, and as a result of COVID, all the money's flowed to the top. Basically, the super a lot of pension funds are now buying up land. They're going Mm. to start planting trees and rewilding. They're going to be paid to do it by property companies to offset. Um, when offset from becoming these do uh, um yeah sort of start building stuff they can offset and they're going to start paying the same people so you've got this almost like all the people pushing this are all very wealthy people who i suspect have got a lot of invested interest in this i think um i just don't if we be wild and actually dave um henry dimble just came out today there's a thing on wicked leaks i literally just posted on my instagram where we've got to feed ourselves. Well, we, if we be wild, we're going to offshore all of our terrible farming methods to other countries and expect them to do it. We'll just put our carbon burden, our biodiversity burden elsewhere. We need to find a way of working with nature and producing food. You know, to me, silver pasture is just the most obvious thing. Um, it is, you know, I hate to say it, and yeah. I think a lot of people, thinking, but if, it's, if it sounds too good to be true, it is too good to be true. Just by leaving your country's go absolutely wild and basically what happens is if you like if you keep animals out if you fence deer out which if you if you shut you if, I, if you speak to every wilder I'll, I'll show you someone who hates deer like, like it's just the weirdest thing they just hate deer um but they so the first thing they do is fence woodland and let it all grow yeah but then you just get a covered wood canopy and you're yeah. you know i've seen what I've got a woodland that was covered for four years and nothing's growing, and there's mm. no nature, there's no nothing. So, basically, and in terms of releasing animals, I actually think brilliant. I mean, I think very close to me is the is the key rewilder in the country. Um, I won't say his name. We actually get on quite well. Derek. Yes. <laughs> so we, Derek, actually get on quite well. He's four miles from me, down in the same valley. So he's currently got wildcats and cats. He's got um, lynx and in- cages what's the um i call it what's that lady on you know what did you watch tiger king
1: uh my wife watched it she talked yeah, so about the
0: it yeah. of, there, was a, there was a woman on tiger king the one that oh, i can't remember her name. but basically derek so as far as i can see rewilding seems to involve having lots of cats in cages so you know <laughs> um but obviously because i got my sheep in the woods i keep on asking derek to make sure his links are still in the cage because obviously links. <laughs> the they deal with me um for me, I think it'd be you know the potential is really exciting. Um, if I knew lynx were in my valley, you know, I would just make sure that the sheep weren't in there at night time. Mm. Um, if they were killed, I would ask to be compensated. You know, like, but I'd hope they wouldn't. Um, I think I could farm around nature, but the trouble is, I don't think this is why it's been done. I think it's being done because it's a huge Tory con. It's basically designed so that we stop producing food. Corporate yeah. companies take over to do food production. We offshore all our of food production. So I think, like I say, I think Biodiv well, could be good, but the people behind it are twats. And like, you yeah, know, I made yeah. no secret of that. As
1: as it happened with can, uh, with uh, you know offshoring our carbon um, emissions basically, yeah. and you
0: know, yeah, But if I can, there's no right, there's a lot of people now. In the restaurant industry in London, they're basically planting trees um, in Madagascar and they're offsetting their carbon by planting trees in Madagascar. Um, They're saying they're carbon neutral. Madagascar itself is going through huge droughts and um, they are a lot of people starving to death because basically their land, they're not farming it. So you've got companies, you've got restaurants in this country. Offsetting their carbon, telling them, telling the world that they're carbon neutral because they're planting trees in the country that's basically where its population is starving. Now, that's that's the future of where this is heading, you know. Like, you know, we do have a colonial past, and as far as I can see, this whole carbon offsetting is gonna, it's basically just, it's like our colonial future, you know, like we are just gonna start using the other parts of the world to basically offset our, you know, you know, we're just gonna do that. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, on <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. No, no, you're right. I mean, it's, in that, in that respect, sounds a
0: bit, um, yeah. you know, grim. Can I say that? Yeah. Like, so Derek standing right from us, he, he's had beavers escape. Like, so, and a lot of them, and <laughs> I've seen signs of them where I am, and I love them. I think they are incredible, and I'm dying for beavers to come along, and I could farm around beavers. I would love to have beavers. I you know, yeah. and, I'm hoping they're going to set up camp. Um, and if I'd lynx, you know, I'd be, you know, we've got like, a, we have got a lot of road deer, but the road deer, yeah. they would soon eat the road deer. Then they'd be after us, you know, so it's, if you're going to do things like links, you need a lot of woodland. And that, if they're going to start thinking about links, that means that their ambition is to have a lot of this country in woodland. And that mm-hmm. means we ain't going to produce much food. And that means someone else is produce our food. You know, if you start Derek himself says that our valley isn't big enough for Lynx and we've got a lot of wood in our valley. If our valley isn't big enough for Lynx, then how many trees... You know, like, what are they planning? Mm, I think... Mm. I personally we rewarding will be... It'll be like a billionaire. It's all going to the same dinner parties and they'll be, like, showing off about who's got the most links and who's got the most this and who's got the most... You know, and it'll become a rich person's elitist thing. Yeah, um, yeah. And meanwhile, yeah, it'll be one of, you know... And we'll be the one, yeah, you know, oh, I'll stop there, I'll put off on my So <laughs> but I think, most of the people pushing Rewilding actually live in South Kent. So I think like some grizzly bears and wolves in South Kensington would be brilliant. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm up for it. Thank you. That's <laughs> thank all right. you so much. I won't, won't take any more of that's your
0: time. It's really, really, been really good fun. Yeah. So it's been a pain. Thank you very much. It's been really good fun. All great. Right.
1: Thank you. Good. Thank good. you. Have a lovely a night. No, take it. Bye. Thanks to all the Delicious Legacy podcast patrons who are making this podcast uh, become true. So thanks to Rachel. Thanks to Damien Bell. Thanks to Mark Knight and uh, Dimitris N and Dimitris M and Stereos and Phil and Andrew Cabanes and Andrew Kenrick and Paul Cooper. And thanks to Michael Zanfardino Elaine Joseph, Alexis R., Steve Holloway, Leah Potts, Lauren Gaither, Chris Banks, Dwight Brown, Zaynep, Guy Joyner, Tom E., and Greg Duncan. Thank you. Thank you very much, all of you, for your support all these months. And all the rest of you out there that I forget. My name is Thomas Dinas, and this is a Delicious Legacy Podcast. Have a lovely week and see you again next time. Good night. Target.